Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. You're listening to Chef's Story, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton from the International Culinary Center in New York. And we usually broadcast out of Roberta's, but we are so lucky today because we're down at the Charleston Food Festival, and we're sitting at the Planters Inn in Charleston, South Carolina, and I have probably Mr. Charleston himself, <laughs> the chef that's, I don't want to say put Charleston on the map, because Charleston's been on the map for, a culinary map especially, for many, many years, but Sean Brock has probably reintroduced, redefined, and re-energized the scene in Charleston, South Carolina for many of us. Oh, and Sean, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having it's, me. It's really a great honor to have you on the show. Oh, my pleasure. And um, I don't want to say I'm a Yankee, but I'm a Yankee from <laughs> New York City, and I'm just loving it and learning so much. And... Uh, I just want to kind of extract from you everything I possibly can about this incredibly fertile, fantastic, <clears throat> delicious place. So, you're a native, right? I've been here 10 years. Um, I'm originally from Virginia, but, you know, 10 years is a long time to live in one place, and, and I'm pretty positive this is the only place I'll ever live. Really? Oh, I'm in love with it. How could you not love it? I mean, it's just an amazing place to live, and it's one of those cities where if you live here... You're proud to live here, and that, I think that's a, a, one of the major reasons everyone is so nice here. I mean, everybody's just in a good mood because they're happy they live here. That's not just the South. I think it's the South, but there's something that's so charming about Charleston when you realize you live in a city that's so beautiful and gorgeous with such a rich history. You know, there's people come here to, you know, you live in a place that's a tourist destination. You know, that's very cool. So tell me about what part of Virginia? Did you, were you born and raised in? I grew up in um, the coal fields of southwestern Virginia. Um, it's uh, a very interesting place to grow up, deep in the Appalachian Mountains. Um, extremely interesting way of life. Uh, way of life is extremely old-fashioned. Um, doing things, um, living off the land and, and growing your own food and preserving and hunting and fishing and really almost kind of being out of touch with 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 the, the normal world um I how, how big a town was <clears throat> it that you oh the in? town that i grew up in has a population less than a thousand really you know so it's it's extremely small town I, the best way to paint the picture is if you've ever seen coal miner's daughter yes that's basically where i'm from Wow. So what kind, <laughs> of, what kind of food did you, you, I guess you, did you go hunting? Yeah, did well, Appalachian um, sort of heritage cooking is is fascinating. It's it's, a, it's extremely um, humble cuisine, uh, but it's really fantastic and delicious. And 
that's really what I plan on spending the next probably 10 years of my life uh, studying and trying to document and, and trying to master. You know, it's all the stuff that I grew up eating. And <clears throat> luckily, my mother lives in Charleston now as well. And so any opportunity we get, we cook together. And I'm always trying to replicate the dishes of my childhood. Um, you know, so the, tell us some of the dishes. Well, you know, the food, it was, it's um, extremely vegetable-based. Uh, and a lot of people don't, you know, a lot of people think about, and they have this idea of Southern food, it's, it's fried chicken, it's barbecue, it's all these things that are unhealthy. Well, I mean, we rarely ate meat as, as a kid. <clears throat> if we did, it was the result of a hunting trip or a fishing trip. Um, it's, it's a lot of vegetables. You live out of the garden, and then when the garden's not booming, uh, you eat out of the basement. You have all these mason jars everywhere and these crocks of fermented foods. And so, uh, you know, a standard meal would be several vegetables um, and cornbread and lots of pickles and preserves and um, uh, a huge table, a huge display of all these things and uh, lots of raw vegetables. Actually, there was always a plate uh, when the ingredients were in season, of course, of sliced tomatoes, raw green onions, raw cucumbers, and raw banana peppers. That was like a mainstay at every meal and it was very interesting to watch uh, these old... Um, the old people eat there. They all eat this, this very interesting way. So you have your plate, and you'll have, say, in one corner, you'll have some braised, um, slow-cooked uh, beans. Then you'll have um, fermented corn. Then you'll have, um, uh, you know, a, f- a fresh vegetable. And then you'll have a piece of cornbread. And it's funny to watch. Uh, all these old people eat, and, and I, I eat this way now as well. It's like it's 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 very thoughtful. It's like you take a bite of beans, and then you take a bite of onion. That flavors the bean, and then you take a bite of the sauerkraut, and then you take a bite, a slice of tomato, and that freshens it back up. And it's just you watch the bite patterns of people, like the eating pattern. And it's funny. I've I noticed it when I was a little kid, <clears throat> and I, I eat that way now as well. But I've had several conversations with other people from that area, and. Uh, that subject comes up a lot. It's, it's it's fascinating. I mean, the that culture. Uh, I I'm scared of of it dying. I mean, there's there isn't really a, a chef who's like really really embracing that region uh, and trying to preserve that food. So I think I'm going to try to. As you have for in, in <laughs> Charleston. Well, um, what, Tell me, were you a good student when you were in school? Did, what did you think of school? You know, I was that student who um, had to make a hundred in an A, or I would just like be, you know, I would be devastated. Uh, so I, I took school, uh, and it was so important to me, and, and I loved it. Like I loved being in school, and I, and I loved uh, getting good grades um, all through high school. Uh, I was the, but I was the long-haired kid with the Volkswagen van making A's. Really? <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, you kind of shocked me. I just had Matt and Ted Lee here, you know, which was a good one, which was a, you know, naughty one. And uh, uh, so, and what were, what were your dreams in high school? I mean, were you, you, you loved to eat, but was food on your radar? Was it just something you, you took for granted? No, what? like, I mean... What were your aspirations other than well, food, I, too? You know, honestly, I, I've always known I was going to be a chef. Um, really? 
I, uh, I mean, I knew when I was when I was eleven or twelve years old, I already had my own pots and pans and walks, and was cooking huge meals and glued to the TV, watching Justin Wilson and Julia Child and Yan Can cook, and watching great chefs, and and just like daydreaming about what it was like to put on that starched white coat and that tall funny hat and handle razor sharp knives with all the stainless steel everywhere and the hum of the hoods and all these people under your command you know waiting for a job and and uh, I just that that's always fascinated me so I've always kind of uh, been that way and, and thought that way but um, I did go through a period where I thought I was going to play in a rock and roll band and be successful but that certainly didn't turn what out. What instrument? I play guitar. Well, I collect guitars now. <laughs> they sit at my house. But I love music. I love music as much as food, and um, that's which is one of the reasons why I'm so excited about our new place in Nashville. Is you know, music is so such an important thing to culture, mm. and and that's what fascinates me these days is trying to understand culture and how each individual culture is formed, and and once you start trying to look at things that way especially in the south you realize how incredibly diverse it is you know even if you look at mississippi there's several kinds of blues from mississippi there's several kinds of cuisine and, and you'll you'll start and you can go through all the states and and look at it that way and 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 i think that's what to me is so so wonderful about the south is you you, you need a lifetime to study it and to understand it so um, this town of a thousand, did they have any restaurants that had white toped chefs in it? We didn't have a restaurant. Um, we had one crummy grocery store. I didn't eat at a restaurant that was not like a chain steakhouse and probably until I was 16 years old. Um, we just cooked at home. And, and if you think about it, it's, 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 it's kind of a European lifestyle. Like, you know, in, in the country, you, you eat off the land and you cook all day long and you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner with your family around the table. And you never go to restaurants. And I, I thought that's the way everyone lived, you know, because seriously, like way back in the mountains. Um, mm. uh, I really thought that's, that's how everyone lived. So you saw these chefs on TV. And it was even because you said you didn't eat in a restaurant until you were 16, <clears> really. That's. But you're saying when you were 11 or 12, you were dreaming of being a chef. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so was that a not? I don't want to say fairy tale, but was it? No, it was a dream. It was a dream. Yeah, yeah. of course. I mean, you know, it's like. So the, it, how did you make that dream come true? Well, I I attached myself to my grandmother and my mother, and I just spent as much time in the garden and in the kitchen. You know, when I was a kid, all of my chores um, that I had to check off every day before I could play. Mario Brothers was yeah. were, were, <laughs> or Wiffle Ball yeah. were things um, in the garden or with food. You know, I'd have to pick lettuces or dig onions or dig potatoes and wash them or crack walnuts or string beans or or shuck corn. You know, I, would, I always had my hands on food and I, and I loved it and, and especially working in the dirt. Um, you know, and I'm, it, I'm still the same way. Like That's just an, an extremely pleasurable thing for me being in the dirt and the smells and the and the food and the vegetables and um I was very lucky to grow up that way so my grandmother saw that she saw how excited I would get when I would eat a potato right out of the ground she would saw she would she saw how excited I would get when I uh would uh, eat the corn right in the field and so she immediately started teaching me 
as much as possible, gave me my own knife, letting me chop at a very young age, hmm. um, and just started teaching me all these things. So, you know, it's like a rite of passage. It's like you learn her technique for biscuits, her technique for cornbread, her technique for sauerkraut, her technique for canning, for making pickles, her technique for chicken and dumplings, um, and... So, do, how did you leave? How did you leave your town? What age were you? <clears throat> well, um, we left uh, Wise County, Virginia, when I was um, eleven or twelve, and uh, we lived in West Virginia for a couple of years. But then we lived in a town called Abingdon, Virginia, and uh, there were lots of great restaurants there. Um, and I was uh, fifteen, so I, that's when I got my first job in the kitchen. Uh, at the hardware company restaurant washing dishes and I would just sit there and wash dishes and just stare at the guys on the line you know and this is like one of those kitchens where everybody on the lines got just dressed in all black black headbands on long hair Metallica's blasting on the stereo the pack of Marlboro Reds is on the station and these guys are just flaming things and just super busy restaurant and I would just sit there and just like in amazement, like that is exactly what I want to do. <laughs> All right, the testosterone is yeah. dripping down the walls. Exactly. Like, That's exactly what I want to do. Right. Uh, and um, and I just uh, you know showed how hard I could work in, in the dish tank, and eventually worked my way through the kitchen, all the stations, and uh, eventually got the respect from everyone and learned how to cook on the line and deal with tickets and juggle a million things at once um, and that's when I decided that uh, you know once I graduated high school I wanted to make the commitment and spend the money on uh, a great culinary school and uh, I made a big list of all the the great schools and, and mapped out this sort of road trip that I was quite excited about but the first stop was Charleston, South Carolina and Johnson and Wales University and I didn't go anywhere else. Like the second I came to the city and started walking around the streets, it just—I was like, "There's no need to go anywhere else. This uh, is where." In love. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was love at first sight, and, and uh, so I, I went to school here, and ironically worked um, at the restaurant that's on this water bottle, oh. and it's the grill, <laughs> uh-huh. which is inside the Planters Inn, where we are right now, and that's where I really got my training and tried to understand what the word chef meant you know what it meant to wear one of those hats and what it meant to um cook at that level and that level of consistency and deliciousness and um that was a life-changing experience for me for sure all right well we're going to take a little break here and when we come back we're going to get into what does it mean to be a chef Uh and chef Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. 
welcome back. You're listening to Chef's Story, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton. And today, my I'm interviewing the great chef of Husk Restaurant um, and others um, in his uh, past, the James Beard nominated and winner for the best Southeast. I think you're up for best outstanding chef in the in the country this oh, year. Um, the much much heralded and acclaimed Sean Brock from Husk Restaurant in Charleston, South Carolina. We're we're following his story, and what does chef mean to you? What you know? How was it when you were eleven thinking about it, and then now you're working in a restaurant and understanding what it is? We have a lot of listeners out there who would love to be a chef. What does it mean to be a chef? Oh, that's an amazing question. You know, the definition of that word and the job duties involved with that profession have changed quite drastically in the last five years even um, you know it used to be much easier your job was to cook delicious food and to feed people now it's much much different um, I think the general public is becoming uh, more and more educated about our food system in America and they want to know they have lots of questions and they, and they want to know the answers and they're turning to chefs for, for, for that knowledge um, so now we have a lot more responsibilities I mean you know we mm-hmm. are concerned with soil health we are concerned with the um, with our waters you know and uh, how animals are raised and how vegetables are grown and you know what a lot of people don't realize is the amount of charity work that we do I mean I spend probably 50% of my time doing charity work and helping people um, in need through food and, and and more and more chefs are doing that these days and some a lot more than others certainly um, but you know these days it's you know it's even to the it's, it's to the point where we're going to senate we're being trained to speak you know in De- in, in Washington um, about uh, laws about antibiotics and food and just farm bills and it's amazing. It's not. Yeah. Do you think? I think that's a. It's it's a wonderful opportunity for chefs, but for for people that are thinking about becoming a chef, what is it that? How do they pay their dues? What do they have to do? Well, I think the most important thing is to set an extremely long term, unattainable goal. Unattainable. Exactly. Why? Because. It, it's all about the push. It's all about the drive, and it's all about trying to get there. And you'd be surprised if you're seeking something that's unattainable, such as perfection. You'd be surprised how much more uh, harder you try uh, every single day. And you know, the the thing about being a chef and and what it takes to be a chef is is extremely complicated. I mean, you you. You have to know what you want in the end. You know, like when you're sitting in the rocking chair with a gray beard and overalls, you know, telling your story, you have to put yourself there first and then you work backwards. Uh, For me, um, you know, I knew, I always knew what that story was. Um, And you you gotta work towards that. And each person's gonna have a different story they wanna tell. And, and, And that's that's how you set yourself up and, and then you you have to realize that um, I mean I'm th- I was 34 two days ago I just turned 35 yesterday 
and um, I've been cooking since I was 15 years old. That's over half my life, um, and it's a commitment, and it's a commitment that <laughs> isn't easy, but is always fun and always rewarding. Um, so I tell mean, me, tell me, husk is such a uh, beautiful. Interesting. It was one of the most exciting menus I have oh, seen. Oh wow! Thank you. Uh, you know, and I get around, uh, but that that menu I could I could have eaten oh <laughs> half, half the dishes right then, and you know wanted to take the other half home. Tell me about husk. Tell me how it came about and what it is that you're doing there every day. Well, um, I've been at McCready's for seven years, uh, which is in this beautiful. Uh, 18th century building and we're trying our best to cook refined and, and creative food and uh, one day I was working and um, the president of the neighborhood dining group that, that uh, operates and manages uh, McCready's and, and Husk now obviously um, David Howard said uh, let's go take a walk I want to show you something so I put the knife down and we went walking down Queen Street um, and I park about a couple blocks away, and my walk to work every day is Queen Street. And every day I, I, I really enjoy the walk and, and looking at the buildings and the architecture and um, trying to figure out what year it was built and which style of architecture it was. And oh, So I was explaining all that to him, and um, he's just listening. Um, and we get to what is now Husk. At the time... It was an old home that was literally, you know, homeless people were actually living in it. And the bar beside it is this, our bar at Husk is this beautiful little brick building. And that building had always caught my eye because it was falling over and it looked terrible. You could literally pull a brick out of it. There was no floor. And I would always sort of daydream, like, man, I would do something really cool in there. You know, like, so every day I would have a different idea of what I would do in that building. And so I stopped in front of that building, and I'm like, you know, and take, you know, take this building, for example. Like, it's just sitting here, rotting away. No one's taking care of it. This is an amazing building, and look at this house. And he's like, do you know something I don't know? I'm like, no, man, but this is insane, isn't it? Like, this could be this. And he's like, this is where I was bringing you. Oh, my God. The investors <laughs> just bought this, who, which our investors are, 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 are unbelievable people who provide us these incredible opportunities to take these buildings and and put our dreams inside of them you know and we couldn't be luckier i mean it's unbelievable um and he's like well this is the guys just bought this and they were thinking about turning it into offices but i thought that maybe i saw a restaurant and he said um what kind of restaurant do you see and i took a look obviously i thought about it (laughs) many times and i said that's 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 a restaurant where you sit down and eat the best damn cornbread you've ever had in your life. Mm. You know, that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a southern restaurant. And um, so we, we talked about that for a few days and, and um, threw many, many, many ideas around. And then, well, first of all, a lot of these guys are British. <laughs> so, you know, to, uh, I had to really sort of state my case. Like, this is why it should be a southern restaurant and not something else. So in order to do that properly, I had to really be able to answer the question, well, what is a Southern restaurant? What is Southern cuisine? What does that mean? Um, so it was a really cool moment in my life because it really allowed me to take a step back and 
analyze how cuisines are formed and, and why certain things are the way that they are. And so once I made, once I was able to internally answer that question, what is Southern food? Uh, what is Southern cuisine? What's a Southern restaurant? Then I started, um, I made a list of, the, the, you know, the Southern restaurants in, in the South and even New York and, and, and wherever. And I started looking through the menus and thinking about their philosophies. And then it made me sort of realize that I needed to do something um, new, something exciting, and something <clears throat> that was important in in ways more than, than just creating delicious food. How can I um, say this is Southern food and this is Southern culture, and look how beautiful it is? Um, and so we decided that in order to do that, um, everything had to be Southern to the bone. You know, like everything had to be about everything had to tell a story about the South. In order to do that, you're, you can only use Southern products. So we made this rule right off the bat: we can't buy anything unless it's below produced below the Mason-Dixon line. Um, and what that does is it really forces us, and it's it's quite challenging, but it forces us to push ourselves in new directions and to really think. So we change the menu twice a day, technically, once for lunch, one, once, once for dinner. We've changed those menus every single day since, since we've been open, uh, and we cook off the cuff. It's like a jazz song, you know? Um, it's like a jazz piece. We uh, had a lot of challenges in the beginning. I mean, you know, when there's, there's no food growing in the fields, what do you cook? So... What do you? Cook? Well, preservation comes in just like just like my childhood. Mm. You go to the mason jars, you know. You go to the freezer and, and you work with what you have, and, and that's taught me more about cooking than I could ever imagine. You know, think about if you go to the pantry at McCready's. You see it's 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 a fascinating place. <laughs> you look around, and there's food from all over the world. There's balsamic vinegar. There's soy sauce. There's fish sauce. There's katsuobushi, there's kelp, there's all these things from all around the world that we have at our fingertips to make to help us make food delicious and unique. Well, the one at Husk is very, very small. I mean, even think about vinegar, for example. Acid is very important to us in our cuisine. Well, obviously for pickling, but for seasoning, um, there aren't very many southern vinegars out there that are available to chefs to purchase. And the ones that we found, we bought everything they had and then used it in like a week. So that forced me to learn how to make vinegar properly. And now we have a, a, a research kitchen that has 50 different vinegars working in it. Um, so it's really pushed us to be, to be better chefs. I mean, like, we make our own salt. You know, we'll grind our own flour. It really pushes us to do things um, the old-fashioned way. It takes away that convenience factor. Um, so it's really taught me a lot about cooking, um, and we do m- pretty much 98% live fire cooking um, at, at Husk. It's, it's either smoked, cooked asado style, cooked in the wood-burning oven. Um, what's, the, what's one of your favorite dishes of this week, since you're <coughs> changing it all the time? Can you, can you describe for us, um, you know, how you conceive a dish and... Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we knew that so many people were coming in town and they were all going to be hungry for stories and they were going to be hungry for that connection to the city and to the cuisine. So we had to be very careful about what we were cooking and 
make sure that everything had a story. So the mini right now is a lot of fun. Um, it's kind of like a greatest hits album. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like all of our favorite dishes. And there's this dish that I love to death. Um, it's called brown oyster Benny stew or Benny brown oyster stew. And essentially, it was a slave dish. Um, it was using wild plants and wild oysters and leftovers. Uh, and so the story of the dish is is is, is pretty cool. It's an old um, it's an old recipe, and it's insanely delicious. Um, we have a plant here. I came from Africa around 1800 called Benny and Benny's sort yeah, correct and it's very similar to sesame in fact uh, it's almost identical but uh, the sesame that we're used to tasting has a very high oil content because a lot of it's used for oil production and over time um, it's been engineered to pr- produce more oil but Benny the Benny from Africa that we use here uh, has very little oil and um, so it's, a, it's actually mostly protein but the flavor is completely different it's very earthy uh, it's, it's very floral it's pleasantly bitter um, in fact like when you eat it when you chew it mm-hmm. nothing happens for a second and the more you chew it's like I call it the everlasting gobstopper it's like you, you go through all these levels of flavor uh, so it's one of my favorite ingredients um, and so f- it came into um, uh, the South mainly for oil production. We were, it was at a, at a time where we were trying to find our oil or fat source. Olives, um, Thomas Jefferson had tried. Obviously, lard was very important. Crisco hadn't been invented yet. So we were trying all different olives ways. Olives aren't of, grown in the South. Absolutely. We have yeah. olives growing a husk. You do? Yeah. So that it's, it, it can take to this climate? Um, you know, I could sit here and talk for hours about uh, olives in the South. I, I have researched it um, for a long time and, and followed its journey. Uh, and now there's some guys in Georgia that are producing some world-class olive oil. Really? Uh, wow. It's fantastic. So is that what you use at the... Uh... Yeah, that's what we use at both restaurants, actually. Um, we're mm-hmm. big supporters of those guys, and we want more people in the South to grow olives um, because... Ninety percent of the olive oil—I don't know if that's the correct stat, by the mm-hmm. way—but let's say a figure like ninety some percent uh, of the olive oil consumed in America comes from outside of America. Um, so I think there's a big opportunity for southern farmers, and I've got this crazy theory about it all mm. to to really make uh, a, in a huge production. Mm. Um, but the mini oil, once it's they were using it for oil, so they would press it and extract the oil uh, and what's left are the seeds that have been mashed and that gets dried and turned into what's called Benny cake flour and it can be used like flour and it has that sort of peanut butter lavender earth uh, bitterness to it and so uh, the dish starts with um, lard and then um, you stir in this Benny cake flour <coughs> and make a roux cook it, cook it, cook it and then you take the oysters and shuck them, drain them of their liquor, and then you put the liquor in with a bit of stock, and you make a little stew, and then um, maybe sometimes some people put bacon in it, or mm-hmm. ham, um, and you bring it up to a simmer, and once it tastes right, maybe season it with some lemon. Mm-hmm. Um, once it tastes uh, delicious, then you drop your oysters in and slowly, slowly poach them, mm-hmm. um, and then you serve that over rice or grits, it's almost like an oyster gravy, mm-hmm. but it has that bitterness and that earthiness and that nuttiness from that bending, and you sprinkle bending over the top. Um, that was a slave dish? 
because it was all scraps. You know, they would serve it over the broken rice because that that's what they would eat because it wasn't uh, uh, good enough for the market because everybody was very particular about rice at this time. So the broken rice they would use, and it, and they would forage a lot of plants and, and, and garnish, you know, different wild herbs and uh, things from the beach as well. And so it's it's so cool to have a dish that not only tells a story like that, but also is insanely delicious. Whoa. So we're going to take a break right here. We're going to come right back and talk more to Sean Brock. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef's Story. And today we're broadcasting from the Planters Inn in Charleston, South Carolina, during the Charleston Food and Wine Festival. And I have the privilege today of talking with Sean Brock, who is one of the most celebrated uh, chefs of the South uh, in in America. And, you know, uh, Sean, I... I'm very envious. I've been in the food field for 30 years. But, you know, you chef guys have a lot of fun. And I know, <laughs> wait, I know, you know what? That's I the think, only thing I'm good at. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I think, you know, James Beard <laughs> Awards have decided you're good at other things, too. But, um, you know, I, I know there's this group of uh, chefs, uh, you know, Rene Rizzeppi and David Chang and you, Daniel Patterson and a bunch of you. You go off uh, around the world. You were sort of in uh, no man's land in Poland, foraging together and hanging out. What? Tell me about this group and tell me how much fun it is. Well, um, <laughs> Give me an inside view. It well, looked like... I was... I was extremely blessed to, to be included in uh, Cook It Raw Japan last year and uh, Cook It Raw Japan? No, Cook It Raw Japan in Japan Oh, oh Kick It Raw <laughs> Japan, yeah. okay That too and uh, <laughs> you know, I'll never forget that phone call being invited and just like how my stomach felt and the excitement And um, so the, the idea really is it's a, it's a field trip and the idea is to teach each other and learn uh, from um, new cultures and different cultures and unknown cuisines and cultures and so you basically go visit an area and you explore it for a week um, and you try and eat the local foods and hear the stories and you 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 visit with artists and you visit with um, the producers and you really try and dig as deep as possible um, you go hunting, you go fishing, you go foraging, you know, you, you go out and gather ingredients. And at the end of this field trip, um, you know, and every night everybody's just, it's just constant brainstorming and talking about what we've learned and how similar it is to what we do or how different it is to what we do. But we're also teaching each other, like, you know, and the conversations are what we're excited about that's going on in our kitchens. So it's a great opportunity to get together. But at the end of this, uh, week of, of discoveries we all come up with a dish that's reflective of what we've learned um, and, and serve it to uh, uh, some dinner guests and it's just an amazing life changing experience I mean uh, Japan I've always wanted to go and I love Japanese food and I respect the culture so much and I respect the cuisine so much so it was an amazing opportunity to go there and really dig deep. And, and so, so walk us through what part of Japan did they take you to, and what was your dish at the end of the week, and what did you learn? Um, well, we started off in, in Tokyo um, and spent a couple of days there, seeing the city, and that was that was just amazing. Um, 
and then we went to Ishikawa Prefecture, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's rice country. Um, and we really sort of it's right there on the Sea of Japan, and so we uh, we we hung out with salt producers. We hung out with sake masters. We hung out at uh, soba houses. Um, I went fishing with Anthony Bourdain in this little fishing village, this little peninsula, um, at four o'clock in the morning, and ate the fish right off the boat. We um, uh, we went foraging in this beautiful forest uh, and had this huge feast and gathered all these beautiful wild plants. Um, it was just an amazing experience. Were there Japanese chefs with you? Uh, there were. Um, in fact, um, Narisawa. Uh, he um, he was with us. He just got number one on uh, 50 best Asia list. Um, so we had a great host, mm. an amazing chef, and an extremely kind and, and humble human being. Uh, just a, just a, an incredible person. Um, so my my idea was um, one of our activities was duck hunting, and uh, I love duck hunting. But we hunt duck with guns in America mm-hmm. they hunt them with nets in Japan mm-hmm. um, they have this huge stick with like a V on the end and it has a net and um, you wait for these ducks to fly from one field to the next uh, at sundown and you kind of crouch and hide and when they fly over you jump up and you throw this huge net in the air and hopefully a duck flies in it um, and so I was cooking duck. <laughs> that was my, I took the duck. I was like, okay, I'll use what we get from the duck. Uh, we didn't catch any ducks. <laughs> so I had to, you know, this is, I'd already conceptualized a dish um, based around Carl Jung, actually. Um, because what they did is they, um, they paired us each with an artist. So, for instance, Narisawa-san got paper. Magnus got um, fabric. Uh, Renee got glass um, and I get this beautiful plate that was broken up into four sections uh, and it was all um, different angles and um, so it really limited what I was able to do I couldn't use a broth I couldn't use a sauce but then I started thinking like um, why four like what what does four mean and then I'd um, recently uh, been reading a lot about Carl Jung and he was fascinated with with quadrants and the number four, and so I started thinking like four seasons, f- you know, four directions, northeast, southwest, four this and four that, and like, you know, somebody come started to make sense, and so um, I wanted to represent that in the dish, but um, we didn't catch the ducks, and that was like the air part of the whole Carl Jung dish. Um, so I ended up using pork, which was incredibly delicious their pork was just amazing um and they used a bunch of wild plants i found uh and they had one ingredient which i was very familiar with over there called a sweet potato (laughs) 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 so i cooked sweet potatoes but one thing that um carl young always talked about like achieving fullness um in life was you had to circle the square and so my dish was the, was a square with a quadrant with all, you know all these things going on, but all these forged plants. I made a circle with these herbs and, and lettuces and shoots on the plate. So there's an actual circle inside the square. So you know, kind of 
it worked out, um, and I was very, very happy with it. That was probably the most stressful dish I've ever had to create on the fly, standing beside Alberto, Audrey, and Renee Redzepi, and Magnus Nielsen, and David Chang, and Daniel <laughs> Patterson. I was terrified. You know, I was completely terrified, but it's amazing what you can, what you can achieve when you're that scared. You know, that's, that's intense the, motivation. The beginning of the interview about pushing yourself. Yeah, and, and, and some people, uh, most people, aren't aren't willing to take the sacrifices that come along with pushing like that. Well, I think it's more <laughs> than the sacrifices. I think it's the risk that scares people. So, um, future, vision, excitement, challenge to you. What what, what does that look like? I want, you know. I, I love cooking and I love being a chef, but you know I'm not sure that I want to stand at the stove and cook catfish for the rest of my life. You know I think I was put on Earth for many other reasons, um, and so for me it's it's a lifetime of studying Southern culture, uh, much in the way that in the same way that John T. Edge and the Southern Foodways Alliance have done, really trying to be inspired by them and follow in in their footsteps because I respect what they've done so much and it's it's changed my life. Um, so for me, you know, I see a lot of research and a lot of traveling and a lot of writing and a lot of teaching. That's, that's um, what I love. You know, I, ju- I just went to Africa, West Africa, to research low country dishes. And Whoa, so is this from the slave trade? <laughs> exactly, the Atlantic slave. Yeah, and, and Tell plants. Tell me more about that. And plants. I mean, mm. you know, Charleston uh, was a rice town. And rice grew here like crazy, and our particular variety of rice or rices, we actually had at one point um, there were a hundred varieties of rice being grown throughout the Low Country. But it was a rice city, and it was built on rice, rice, indigo, and cotton actually. But rice was a very successful crop. And um, oh, we've got we've got a little New York action <laughs> out there with the, with the fire department. I'm just going to close this store. But, but tell, so I guess the rice came from Africa, no? Originally, well, or? we're still trying to find that answer, but a lot of people believe that it came from Africa uh, or the West Indies. Um, but regardless of where it came from, uh, all of the people that, that worked those rice plantations, um, well, most of them were from West Africa. So they brought over specific plants and agricultural techniques and cooking techniques and they taught us and so if um, you try and understand what low country cuisine is you have to understand what it took to grow rice and you had to understand crop rotations and you had to understand what each plant did and what its place was in the field and then once you realize that then then you see those plants things like Benny things like um, okra things like Sea Island red peas, things like corn, they all find their way into the pantry, into the kitchen. And so here's your pantry, these ingredients, and then you take the cultural influences uh, of West African cuisine, uh, their cooking techniques, their dishes, and you add those two things together, um, and, and you get low country cuisine. So a lot of our dishes. How did you know where to go in West Africa? Well, first of all, I wanted to go to <laughs> a safe place. Yes. <laughs> um, but I have a I have a great friend who um, had some connections there and uh, knew some chefs and cooks, and that's kind of how the whole thing got started. And um, 
so I went there and, and cooked in people's homes and ate and uh, just had some amazing conversations. Did and, you see the connections? Oh, it was it was so fascinating to see the original gumbo, the original jambalaya, the original hop and john. Oh, really? The, What's the original gumbo like? The original gumbo um, looks exactly like ours, exactly to the T. Looks exactly the same, but ours has, um, or usually has, a lot of people make it differently. Um, tomato and a dark roux. Uh, both of those things aren't in um, West African gumbo, um, but it looks exactly the same. And the red color comes from palm oil. Uh, there's oh. palm trees everywhere there, and everyone makes their own palm oil. And palm oil is sold everywhere, and it's this bright. It looks like Fanta strawberry soda or something. It's like this unnatural, crazy, orange-red color. Um, it has this really cool flavor. It's, it's it, a flavor that I don't even know how to describe because I've never tasted anything like it before, so I don't have a reference. Um, but it's very thick, uh, and it's, it's, it almost has, like, sediment in it So and pulp. So they, they stir that in, uh, and it gives it this really cool mouthfeel, and texture, but it turns it that that crazy bright red, um, and you know, no one really eats pork there, um, so uh, you know a lot of the southern dishes, we get that umami, that depth of flavor from ham hocks, from country ham, from bacon, from fatback. Well, there, I was amazed to see how they achieve that umami and that depth and that richness. They use smoked and fermented shellfish and fish really? in, in its get place. Really? They from that. So, let's say you're searing lamb for a dish uh, where we may throw bacon in the pan mm-hmm. and the oil just or a piece of fat back. They throw in fermented sea snails or smoked oysters or dried shrimp uh, or fermented locust bean gum uh, locust beans and um, flavor the oil with that and then take it out and then roast the meat. Or if they're cooking rice or you know maybe we would season it with ham hock. They would throw in a fermented shellfish, a fermented clam, or a smoked oyster, and get that umami from that. And when you eat it, it's almost exactly the same. There's no pork. Um, so things like that were quite fascinating. Wow. Well, I could go on forever. I think talking to you. I I you know I've never met you before today, and I was uh, really excited to meet this great chef. But I've also met an incredible storyteller and an incredible teacher. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. I want to thank you so much My for coming by today. Anytime. Thank you. Okay. Uh, this is Dorothy Ken Hamilton, and I want to give a shout-out to our producers, Jack Inslee and Robert Cohen, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.